we had so much information that we wanted to share with you on this episode of the Doc Washburn Show. Our audio software literally would not let us put it all in one file. I hope you checked out part one of episode 264. Now we continue with part two. All right. Next, we need to do an update about what has been going on lately with John Durham. And we want to start off with an article over at Technofog's Substack. This is entitled EDVA Jury, colon, Igor Danchenko, Not Guilty on All Counts. And EDVA stands for Eastern District, Virginia. That is the uh, federal district where the jury was that did the trial. And it dropped the, the, the very evening that the verdict came down, Tuesday night, October 18th. And the great Technofog says, Igor Danchenko has been found not guilty of providing false statements to federal officials in the course of their so-called investigation into the Steele dossier. After count one was dismissed, the Charles Dolan count, these charges remained. Count two, March 16th, 2017, Danchenko told FBI agents he received a call in late July 2016 from a person he thought was Sergey Millian when Danchenko knew he had never received a call from Millian. Count three, May 18, 2017, Danchenko gave a false statement to FBI agents that he was under the impression that the late July 2016 call was from Millian. Count four, October 24th, 2017, Danchenko falsely stated to FBI agents that he believed he spoke to Millian on the phone on more than one occasion. Count 5, November 16, 2017. Danchenko lied that he believed he had spoken to Millian on the telephone when Danchenko well knew he had never spoken to Millian. Now that's the difficulty, Technofog says, of proving a false statements case when the FBI and the Mueller special counsel were not interested in pursuing the truth. As we've seen from the course of this trial, the most important takeaways from this trial have never been the alleged lies. Danchenko himself has long been known as a fabricator. With his deceptions revealed, as soon as information on his involvement in the Steele dossier, his background, and his FBI interviews were released. Q observations from 2020 from ourselves and many others. And then Technofog has one of his own tweets embedded in this article from September 24th, 2020, in which he says, did Steele's primary subsource lie to the FBI? Subsource told FBI, to his knowledge, he has not had any contacts with the Russian intelligence. FBI files reveal repeated contacts and familiarity with Russian intelligence officials. So his article continues, he says, what is more important is that which informs our understanding of the Trump-Russia investigation and the FBI-DOJ-Mueller misconduct that sparked Crossfire Hurricane and continued through the Mueller investigation. That information was revelatory. The institutions were on trial alongside Danchenko, with Durham recognizing in his closing arguments that the FBI mishandled the investigation at issue. And the institutions rightly suffered. Danchenko might have been spared, but is there any reasonable doubt as to the FBI's incompetence and guilt? This past week, 
we provided some of the most comprehensive coverage of the Danchenko trial that you will find. Our goal is to always provide the most relevant information, preferably through transcript excerpts where you, the reader, can see the testimony for yourself and reach your own conclusions. At the same time, we also aim for concision, in other words, to be concise. We hope that we achieved those goals. For us, here are some of the most important highlights from the trial. And with each highlight, you'll have a screenshot from the transcript. First of all, Christopher Steele was offered up to a million dollars to corroborate the dossier. Second, Danchenko was a confidential human source for the FBI from March 2017 through October 2020. He was accused of giving a number of false statements during that time period. He was paid over $200,000 as an informant, and his status as a confidential human source buried him as a witness. You know, sources and methods, you know? I mean, oh, sorry, no, we, we can't reveal that because that would be revealing a source. Third, the Mueller special counsel had FBI agents and, and analysts investigating the Steele dossier but purposefully limited the scope of that inquiry, making sure any information damning to their investigation would not be uncovered. Former FBI intelligence analyst Brittany Herzog, remember I mentioned her the other day, testified that she learned of Charles Dolan's connections to Danchenko during her time with the Mueller special counsel. She requested to interview Dolan. Others opposed that request. The opposition won out. Fourth, FBI special agent Amy Anderson also part of the Mueller special counsel, requested to interview Dolan. Her request was shut down by superiors. Fifth, Director Comey was informed on all parts of the Crossfire Hurricane investigation from its beginnings up until, theoretically, his termination. Sixth, FBI Special Agent Kevin Helson, who handled Danchenko as a confidential human source, omitted key derogatory information that Danchenko was the target of a previous espionage case in his opening paperwork. Seventh, FBI Special Agent Kevin Helson was recommended to assess Danchenko's employer and look at the financial nature of Danchenko's employment. Helson failed to do so. Eighth, FBI Special Agent Helson was recommended to investigate whether Danchenko lied in his visa and immigration documents. Helson failed to do so. Ninth, FBI Special Agent Kevin Helson, by the way, there's a purpose in the repetition, was recommended to conduct a polygraph of Danchenko to determine if he has ever been given the task by a foreign individual, entity, or government to collect information or to perform actions adverse to the U.S. interests. Helson failed to polygraph Danchenko. Tenth, Crossfire Hurricane started based on a suggestion of some kind of suggestion from a friendly foreign government. It was opened as a full investigation, which allowed for the use of investigative tools not allowed at the preliminary investigation stage. Twelfth, the FBI wanted a FISA on Carter Page fairly early on, around the end of July 2016 or soon thereafter. However, the FBI didn't have enough to secure the warrant. The evidence wasn't there. Thirteenth, FBI analyst Brian Auten was unable to confirm or corroborate any of the Steele dossier claims, 
from the receipt of the document until the first FISA application in October 2016. 14th, FBI analyst Brian Auden and FBI colleague Stephen Soma knew Democrat Charles Dolan, Democrat activist now, Charles Dolan, could be a source of information of the Steele dossier. Neither one of them asked D- Neither one of them asked Igor Danchenko about Dolan. 17th, Dolan would ultimately testify that he believed some dossier information came from him. 18th, the FBI checked with other agencies and was unable to corroborate the dossier info. 19th, FBI analyst Brian Auten is a subject of the Durham investigation and will likely be suspended by the FBI, so wait, 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 does, this, does that mean maybe Durham has more prosecutions up his sleeve? I hope that's what it means. 20th, Sergey Millian was a confidential human source for the FBI's Atlanta field office. The Crossfire Hurricane team found no evidence Millian had assisted in the interference of the 2016 presidential election. And 21st, while Danchenko told the FBI he spoke with Millian, Emails from Millian demonstrate he had no idea who Millian was. The FBI Mueller special counsel never obtained those emails. All right, so what about the unanswered questions? Technofog asks. Well, when presented with the FBI failures documented during the Danchenko trial and the Michael Sussman trial, one can't help but be reminded of their investigation of the so-called DNC hack. Both investigations have similar types of errors, the failure to pursue investigative leads and collect evidence and uncorroborated claims of Russian interference or collusion based on information provided by DNC slash Clinton contractors. Here, the FBI and Mulder special counsel refused to interview witnesses with knowledge of the dossier allegations. In the case of the DNC so-called hack, the FBI never obtained the DNC server. The FBI didn't even obtain the unredacted CrowdStrike reports relating to the so-called hack. Instead, the FBI relied upon CrowdStrike, hired on behalf of the DNC by disgraced attorney Michael Sussman, to inform the FBI's assessment of the hack. As Aaron Matei explained in this essential essay, and he links the essay, which is over at Real Clear Investigations, and it's called Hidden Over Two Years. Dem cyber firm's sworn testimony, it had no proof of Russian hack of DNC. Okay? No wonder Technofog says it's an essential essay. But here's the money quote from it. The fact that the Democrat Party employed the two private firms that generated the core allegations at the heart of Russiagate Russian email hacking, and Trump-Russia collusion suggests that the federal investigation was compromised from the start. At this point, Technofog says, at some point, mistakes consistently made in one direction cease to be harmless errors and become circumstantial evidence of something nefarious. In another context, we might call that the cumulative weight of circumstantial evidence. While we can draw inferences from that behavior, Durham faces a more difficult task, using such circumstantial evidence to build a criminal case. Maybe he has more. Maybe not. Maybe these FBI agents and officials were adept at hiding their criminal conduct 
under the guise of incompetence or cluelessness or a poor memory. Now, at this point, Technofog says this reminds me of Horowitz's report, you know, the inspector general for DOJ, reminds me of his report on the Carter Page FISA's, the FISA warrants, which made such findings as, while we found no documentary or testimonial evidence that this pattern of errors by case agent one was intentional, we also did not find his explanations for so many significant and repeated failures to be satisfactory. Well, Technofog in conclusion says, we also ask whether that's it for Durham. The Wall Street Journal reported this would likely be the final prosecution of the special counsel to be followed by a report detailing Durham's findings. If that's true, expect the report to be submitted after the midterms, absent further developments or other prosecutions by the Durham special counsel. If the reporting is true, we'll see. Well, nobody does a better job of summarizing what's going on with Durham than Technofog does. Now, Cash Patel, a recent guest on my show, was on John Solomon's Just the News show on Real America's Voice Tuesday evening to react to the federal jury in Northern Virginia finding Igor Danchenko not guilty on all four counts of lying to the FBI. John Solomon's co-host, Amanda Head, said, as much as we were prepared for this, she couldn't help but see the optics. A D.C. area jury would convict a Trump supporter on little to no evidence, obviously referencing the January 6th political prisoners, but with Sussman tried in front of a D.C. jury and Danchenko in front of a Northern Virginia jury right over the Potomac River, they walk free. Here was Cash Patel's response. Yeah, it's. Uh, I'll still say it. I still think it's shocking. Maybe that's just from my biased tenure at the DOJ where I thought at some point in time there would be an elimination of the two-tier system of justice. But it shows to me that you guys were right the whole time and John's investigative reporting has put out so much important information. But I think what a lot of Americans are going to take from this is that, you know, maybe uh, it's not worth fighting anymore and even if we put the fbi on trial and you can pay a guy hundreds of thousands of dollars of government taxpayer money to participate in the biggest criminal conspiracy in america and then he can be tried for lying to the very employer um that he gave information to and then walk out of a federal courthouse a free man it's quite the justice charade but it happens when you enact a two-tier system of justice that chris rain and merrick garland are quarterbacking then john solomon said he had talked to a lot of people during the past 48 hours during the jury's deliberations and to a person everyone said it's hard to convict a source when the fbi showed it wanted to believe the garbage information that was coming in from these sources solomon said he thinks That's the ultimate moral of the Sussman and Danchenko trials. The jury could see the FBI believed this. They kept it going. They had all the red flags. Their own people were warning them. Now the question turns to what can be done to fix the FBI, right? The FBI blew past warning sign after warning sign that this was a bogus case. Any sign that there will be improvements imposed on the FBI? And here was Cash Patel's response. 
Well, on this one, I think I'll be a little harsher on the FBI. It's not that the FBI believed it. It's that the FBI knew it was false and lied about it, which is my problem for a federal prosecutor, is that they were ingesting false information intentionally and then lying to federal courts and federal officers about that information and then working in reverse to cover up their arrogant government corruption and their lies by hiring Christopher Steele, Igor Danchenkov, and, um, you know, utilizing the Democratic National Committee and Hillary campaign and the fake news media to buttress their lies. Now, to your question on how do we get to a fix? Well, Congress is probably going to have to form a special committee because there is no one committee that can fix law enforcement, FBI, DOJ, intelligence community, CIA, and DOD. And in one way, shape, or form, most, if not all of them, had a hand in this. And the Church Commission comes to mind. I know a lot of people have talked about that from the 70s. But that's what it's going to take. And I just don't know if we have the congressional will, maybe we will, coming in in uh, uh, November here, to stand up such a committee because it's going to take leadership to put it together, to implement it, and then to put brave individuals on it who aren't going to care about their political careers. Then Amanda brings up Solomon's new story about interest-free, forgivable loans for the Bidens from CEFC, the Chinese Communist Party-connected energy company, to the Biden family. And she asks for Cash Patel's reaction to this explosive story. You know, free money is exactly what it is. That's exactly the truth social post I said it was. Free money. I guess everybody can get free money from China if you're the son of a vice president about to be son of a president of the United States. But if we did it in that regard, then it would be criminal if your name wasn't Joe Biden and your son's name wasn't Hunter Biden. Now, listen, John and I investigated Russiagate so extensively, and the theme that I always had there was follow the money, money doesn't lie. And it looks like John has done just that yet again to follow the money because uh, a bank wreck that is not fudgeable. And now what needs to happen is, why did you were you given an interest-free loan by one of America's biggest enemies? What was asked in return? And oh, by the way, interest-free loans from foreign governments are likely illegal. So is Hunter Biden ever going to be prosecuted for anything? And will this land at the presidency of Joe Biden? I mean, all you have to do is just switch the characters a little bit. What if Don Jr. received an interest-free loan while his dad was president of the United States from the CCP? Would we even be having this conversation? John Solomon responds that CNN would have breaking news banners 24-7 like they did with the Russia collusion hoax. Then he tells Cash Patel he wants to ask him about something in the documents with credit to Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican of Iowa. He said they got a hold of the Tony Bobulinski FBI interview summary. Tony Bobulinski, of course, one of the business partners of Hunter and Joe Biden. He's the guy that mentions the big guy, the guy that Tucker Carlson interviewed right before the 2020 presidential election. And he says that some of the work that was done on the China deal was actually done by Joe Biden, who was still in the White House as vice president. And then China deferred the money so they wouldn't be making payments to Joe Biden's family till after he left office. That suggests some consciousness in what they were doing in this scheme and augments Senator Grassley's argument that this was a pay-to-play scheme. So at this point, John Solomon asks Cash Patel for his thoughts on that revelation. Yeah, from my perspective as as a prosecutor, that's what we call structuring transactions. And what you do is you structure transactions to evade scrutiny from the banking regimes of either your home country or foreign nation. And if you sp- and I'll give you a simple example: everything over ten thousand dollars is reportable. And a lot of people intentionally structure transactions or criminals to report nine thousand nine hundred dollars so they don't have to report the ten thousand dollars. What happens here is that 
it was a deferred payment to basically pull the curtain over the intention of the purposes of that payment. That is another form of a structured transaction to hide possible criminal conduct. So, you know, Senator Grassley, probably no one better than he and, you know, Ron Johnson and Jim Jordan, those few guys to go after these sorts of things. But it's going to require a committee. I'm just telling you, like, we cannot fix what happened, whether it's Russiagate or Hunter Biden, by going through one single entity, um, either Intel or Judiciary or whatnot. It's going to require monumental mental overhaul. And the all of these are just going to have to get thrown into the gonculator in terms of investigations and to expose the corruption that um, that the American people deserve to see. Okay, so Amanda responds, one of the most astounding things about this is one of the communications with the risk analysis team for the CEFC, the Chinese Communist Party-owned energy company, deferred the payments because they were worried about the optics. Again, the actual company run by the Chinese Communist Party was worried about the optics, but the Bidens knew they would be able to skate past this and get away with it. That is one of the most reprehensible aspects of this. The CCP actually thought there was an issue, but the Bidens, nah, no problem. I mean, that is a great juxtaposition. I don't think I've heard it quite put so well, Amanda. I mean, talk about government gangsters and their arrogance at the uh, top of the corruption pyramid. The CCP, the Communist Party of China, who is holding American citizens, detainees, and unlawful hostages, who is pumping fentanyl into our streets and killing our children 100,000 last year. These people had more morals than the Biden administration or the Biden family when it came to reporting monetary uh, income. That is a shocking revelation that I hope the American public and Congress focuses on because what it goes to is intent. And that I say that as a former federal prosecutor, that's one of the key element when you have to try and prove any of these charges is that they intend to deceive, to defraud, or to commit this crime. And I think it's pretty simple. If you told a jury, hey, they had less morals than the Communist Party of China, uh, you know, I don't know that a D.C. jury would convict them, but maybe most of mainstream America would. All right, great interview, insightful interview. I just wish they had asked Cash Patel, though, if he has any insight, any prediction on what John Durham will do next. Speaking of which, one of the things I do here on the Doc Washburn Show is to try to give you context, is to share with you the observations that other people who are paying close attention have. So before we get out of here for this episode, two more articles I have for you. First of all, from the great Margot Cleveland. Now remember, she is the senior legal correspondent to The Federalist. And then we've got uh, Julie Kelly coming up over in American Greatness after this. Margot Cleveland, Media shame Durham after Danchenko verdict, but it's Russia hoaxers who should be embarrassed. So Ms. Cleveland says, of course, a Virginia jury acquitted Steele dossier's primary subsource Igor Danchenko on Tuesday of charges he lied to the FBI about a supposed telephone call he received in the summer of 2016. On numerous occasions during the Crossfire Hurricane and Special Counsel Robert Mueller investigations, Danchenko told the FBI he had received an anonymous telephone call from an individual 
he believed was Sergei Millian. Among other things, Danchenko maintained the caller revealed there was a well-developed conspiracy of cooperation between the Trump campaign and Russian officials. Claims Christopher Steele incorporated into his infamous dossier, which the FBI then used to obtain four Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, court orders to intercept Carter Page's telephone and email communications. Tuesday's non-guilty verdict came after a day and a half of deliberation and following a four-day trial at which special counsel John Durham's team presented evidence that Danchenko did not know Million and had not received any telephone calls during the relevant time frame that might fit the description of the call Danchenko claimed he received, Danchenko's defense attorney skillfully countered that Danchenko had told the FBI that the anonymous call may have been received on an Internet app, and thus there would be no record of the call. The defense team also provided the jury with evidence showing that Danchenko and Million were both in New York during the time frame in which Danchenko claimed they had scheduled a meeting. The jury's acquittal followed the dismissal on Friday by presiding judge Anthony Trenga of the special counsel's false statement count premised on Danchenko's claim to the FBI that he had never, quote, talked, unquote, to Charles Dolan, a Democrat booster, and Clinton crony about portions of the dossier. In tossing that count, Judge Tringa reasoned that because Danchenko's relevant exchanges with Dolan were via email, it was literally true that Danchenko had not actually talked with him about the material contained in the dossier. No sooner had news broken of the jury's non-guilty verdict on the remaining four counts than the Russia collusion hoaxers declared the defeat and embarrassment to special counsel Durham with CNN's reporting representative of the narrative. CNN said, Durham has taken two cases to trial and both have ended in acquittals. After more than three years looking for misconduct in the FBI's Trump-Russia probe, Durham has only secured one conviction, the guilty plea of a low-level FBI lawyer who got probation. Margot Cleveland continues, no doubt, the acquittal of Danchenko, and before him, former Clinton campaign attorney Michael Sussman, were disappointing. But the jury verdicts are not an indictment of Durham, and he is not the one who should be embarrassed. Hillary Clinton should be embarrassed for laundering money through her campaign's law firm to pay Russian nationals such as Danchenko for the salacious and false intel contained in the Steele dossier that was then peddled on her behalf to the Department of Justice, FBI, and CIA, resulting in the illegal surveillance of an American citizen. Likewise, every DOJ and FBI employee responsible for using the uncorroborated steel memoranda to obtain four FISA court orders to surveil Carter Page should be embarrassed as should the FISA court judges responsible for authorizing the most intrusive court-ordered surveillance possible based on what was clearly double and triple hearsay from sources of unknown reliability. The DOJ and FBI employees responsible for launching an investigation into a presidential candidate's campaign based on the pretext that a low-level volunteer advisor had made a passing comment over drinks to an Australian diplomat that the Russians might release information detrimental to Clinton should be embarrassed, and they should be embarrassed for continuing the charade for years, knowing there was no there there. Former FBI Deputy Assistant Director Peter Strzok 
should be embarrassed about many things. His extramarital affair, his launching of a crossfire hurricane, his plotting to prompt the removal of then-National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, his making of the most impactful series of missteps seen in some 20-plus years at the Bureau that called into question and thoroughly damaged the reputation of the FBI, quotes again from the Inspector General's report, Michael Horowitz his sneering at Congress and gloating on Twitter, and his lack of shame that allows him to present himself as a pundit to this day. Those corporate media outlets that feature struck should likewise be embarrassed. Equally embarrassed should be James Comey for giving Trump a defensive briefing to provide CNN a hook to report the dossier, for taking secret notes of his conversations with the president, and using a lawyer pal to leak those to the media once he was fired to prompt the appointment of a special counsel for failing to inform then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions of developments in the case prior to Sessions' recusal for overseeing the crossfire hurricane debacle and violating Page's constitutional rights and for having no shame. Representative Adam Schiff, Democrat, California, should be embarrassed for lying to the American public knowing the truth remained classified. So too should confidential human sources Stefan Halper, Rodney Joffe, Steele, and Danchenko be embarrassed for peddling false intel to the FBI, as should their handlers, especially Danchenko's handler, who failed to polygraph the Russian or conduct the many recommended procedures necessary to ensure his loyalty and credibility. And those responsible for approving Danchenko's service as a confidential human source, should be embarrassed they did so without regard for the prior espionage investigation into Danchenko that never reached conclusion. Former DOJ General Counsel James Baker should be embarrassed for shrugging off the peddling by Michael Sussman of the Alpha Bank Trump-Russia hoax, and those computer scientists responsible for assisting in the hoax should all be embarrassed too. Inspector General Michael Horowitz and his office should be embarrassed as well for keeping information from Special Counsel John Durham. Likewise, the agents working the Crossfire Hurricane investigation or assisting Robert Mueller's Special Counsel probe should be embarrassed for not doing their jobs or for not blowing the whistle when others weaponized the criminal justice system. And Mueller should be embarrassed that he allowed his underlings to hijack his good name to get Trump. None of this could have happened, however, had the media done its job. So those journalists who used their skills to sell the Russia collusion hoax and who have since failed to report the truth of the scandal should be embarrassed. And finally, every American who just doesn't care that the DOJ and intelligence communities were weaponized to get Trump should be embarrassed. But John Durham? No. He has no reason to be embarrassed by Tuesday's verdict. Durham should be mortified, however, that his labors of the last three years have not brought reform, but instead have bred resistance, proving the prudential path former Attorney General William Barr directed him down to be a dead end. And if the Danchenko case is his last, as has been reported, there will be no end to the political weaponization of the DOJ. That is not embarrassing, though. That is devastating. Once again, Margot Cleveland, the great Margot Cleveland, senior legal correspondent at TheFederalist.com, her article entitled, 
media shame Durham after Danchenko verdict, but it's Russia hoaxers who should be embarrassed. Now from the great Margot Cleveland to the great Julie Kelly over at American Greatness. Her article entitled, The FBI's Million Dollar Men. And she dropped this on Monday, but I got to share it with you because it is still so prescient and compelling. So remember, dropped Monday before the verdict on Danchenko, but that doesn't matter because she ties a lot of things together, and it's my duty to share this with you. Okay, here's what Julie Kelly says. Proceedings underway in three U.S. courtrooms are providing a coordinated view into the abuse of the FBI's confidential human source program, a cash flush operation now primarily used to bolster Democrat Party narratives instead of detecting and preventing crime. As I've reported, the FBI spends an average of $42 million per year to pay informants and does so with absolutely no financial or legal accountability. Confidential human sources are paid in cash. They can offer their services for a variety of reasons, including financial need or to obtain a change in immigration status. FBI agents are required to keep at least one informant on the books, according to what an FBI whistleblower told me. Successfully using a confidential human source to bust up a crime is one way to get promoted. But ongoing trials related to the Trump-Russia collusion hoax January 6th and the Whitmer kidnapping case, or should I say the Whitmer fednapping case up in Michigan, are once again shining a light on the way the Bureau hires snitches to advance political goals. After numerous investigations over the course of more than six years, not to mention an obsessive fixation by the national media, the scandal known as Russiagate produced another bombshell revelation during the perjury trial of Igor Danchenko, the key source for the Steele dossier. The FBI offered to pay Christopher Steele, its author, up to $1 million in cash if he could verify the dossier's declarations about Donald Trump's alleged ties to Russia. He could not. Described for years as a former British intelligence officer, Steele, in fact, was a private consultant with several paymasters in 2016. Hillary Clinton's campaign and the Democrat National Committee retained Steele to write his dossier that alleged shadowy connections between the Kremlin and Trump associates. At the same time, Steele was lobbying the U.S. government on behalf of Oleg Deripaska a Russian oligarch who ran afoul of the Obama administration. When the cash offer was made in October 2016, Steele also was working as an informant for the FBI. It's unknown how much he was paid. He moved seamlessly between the Bureau, other government agencies, including the State Department and the national news media, almost until Election Day. Steele met with journalists and editors in the fall of 2016 to spin the dossier's content as legitimate, and some outlets took the bait. The Bureau severed the arrangement in late October 2016 after learning Steele had met with reporters, but the damage was done. Steele's fabricated dirt 
seeded the Trump-Russia election collusion hoax. Turns out Steele wasn't the only paid FBI informant tied to the dossier. Testimony revealed the FBI hired Danchenko as an informant in March 2017 and paid him at least $200,000 until the FBI cut him loose October 2020, the same month Attorney General William Barr named U.S. Attorney John Durham a special counsel. Stephan Halper, another FBI informant, also aided the FBI's effort to smear Trump via Russiagate. It's unclear exactly what Danchenko did as an informant. Was he used as a behind-the-scenes leaker to give oxygen to the Russiagate hoax in the media? Did the Bureau hire him as an informant to protect him and the FBI from the prying eyes of investigators? Either way, it's clear the FBI didn't hire these informants because the government had cause to suspect Trump was in cahoots with Russia to rig the 2016 election. To the contrary, the informants manufactured the falsehood, giving FBI partisans and the news media fabricated evidence to sabotage Trump with the FBI's imprimatur. The Bureau's crusade against Trump continued, climaxing with the events of January 6, 2021. Down the interstate from Danchenko's trial in Virginia is the seditious conspiracy trial of five members of the Oath Keepers. Prosecutors working under U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia, Matthew Graves, a Biden campaign advisor, are trying to convince a D.C. jury that the Oath Keepers tried to overturn the government that day. The case rests largely on inflammatory posts in group chats and social media. None is accused of committing violence that day. In fact, those who legally brought firearms from various states kept their weapons behind in a Virginia hotel on January 6th. Evidence suggests they tried to help police calm the crowd inside. Two of them never even entered the building. But that isn't stopping U.S. Attorney Graves' office from insisting the Oath Keepers, a group of former military and law enforcement officers, plotted a traitorous coup. But at the last minute, the government admitted five informants had been embedded in the group, likely before the Capitol protest. Prosecutors, however, do not want jurors to hear much about those informants, particularly their work in past so-called investigations, code for past entrapment schemes. The New York Times reported last year that FBI informants had infiltrated the Proud Boys, another alleged militia charged in the Capitol breach months before January 6th. The group's leader himself is a former confidential human source for the FBI. Other unknowns in the Oath Keepers case raise serious questions about the FBI's deeper involvement. A man who created an encrypted group chat and could be heard urging at least one Oath Keeper to commit violence remains unidentified and uncharged, following a pattern of other unidentified instigators such as Ray Epps. Dozens of alleged Oath Keepers who participated in similar conduct also are not charged. And defense counsel discovered that at least 20 FBI and ATF agents were near the group on January 6th. Uh, doing what exactly? If federal agents were in the city that day, why didn't they protect the Capitol and lawmakers inside? 
None of it adds up. So what we're looking at here is a history of entrapment. About 800 miles away, three Michigan men are on trial for a very similar conspiracy case. In 2020, state prosecutors charged Joe Morrison, Pete Musico, and Paul Beller for providing material support for a terrorist act related to the plot to kidnap and kill Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. But two separate federal trials exposed how the scheme was engineered by multiple FBI agents and informants. Two men were acquitted by a federal jury in April amid an FBI entrapment defense. That jury hung on two other defendants, but they were convicted at a second trial in August. At least a dozen informants worked the Fednapping hoax. The total cost to taxpayers has not yet been disclosed. The lead FBI informant, Dan Chappell, took the stand last week in the state trial to explain his role. As I've reported, the FBI compensated Chappell at least $60,000 in cash and personal items to stitch the random targets together. An FBI agent handed Chappell an envelope with $23,500 in cash in December of 2020, two months after the arrests were made in the case. But Chappell's testimony and defense filings show how he lured the, the men into the FBI's trap. Chappell created encrypted group chats to foster talk of violence while giving the FBI direct access to the secret communications. He organized meetings where he recorded every word, even when the targets were drunk or stoned. On two occasions, Chapel drove his main target to Whitmer's vacation cottage, the scene of the potential crime on a so-called surveillance trip that in reality was a stunt to produce photographs later used as evidence against the man. Chapel, however, broke FBI protocol in several instances, including suggesting criminal acts and becoming a commander in the fake militia the FBI invented exclusively for the Fednapping caper. Defense attorneys grilled Chapel last week about the veracity of the government's explanation as to how Chapel became an informant. Turns out his previous claim that he went to the FBI after being alarmed at seeing violent anti-law enforcement chatter on a website wasn't true. Chapel also couldn't explain why he didn't receive a Purple Heart if he indeed suffered injuries during the Iraq War, a representation made by both Chapel and the government. One defense attorney said in court, this witness can't get away with misrepresenting his conduct, his service, his valor, which I would argue is stolen valor in this matter to these 15 people. The nexus of all three trials is, of course, Donald Trump. In Russiagate, the goal was to portray Trump as a tool of the Kremlin, a president illegitimately elected with the help of Russia. In the other two cases, innocent men and trapped, then prosecuted by the government, are pawns to prove that so-called domestic violent extremists loyal to Donald Trump are prone to violence on his behalf. Over the weekend, Representative James Comer, Republican of Kentucky, said if Republicans take control of the House, he would support establishing a committee to investigate the FBI. Representative Comer told Fox News' Maria Bartiromo, we have a huge problem with the FBI, and the fact is the American people have lost faith in the FBI. It's going in the wrong direction. Well, it sure is. Republican voters 
want a full-scale investigation into the investigators. House GOP leaders would be wise to include the investigators' long list of highly paid political hitmen known as FBI informants. That is the great Julie Kelly over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com, and her article is entitled, The FBI's Million Dollar Men. That having been said, it's about time to say it. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. All right, it's time for our Tweet of the Day, brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com, the big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online and have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. Now, as we often do, today's Tweet of the Day is a two-parter. It starts off with the lamentable, the horrific Christopher Steele, a guy who has given this country a lot of problems, a guy that I would not trust if he told me that it was hot outside in the middle of summer in Arkansas. Christopher Steele went out on Twitter and said, Igor Danchenko's unmasking and indictment is one of the most disgraceful episodes in U.S. judicial history. Igor, a valuable FBI source on Russia, was thrown under the bus for partisan political gain. In my opinion, the only beneficiaries from Barr and Durham's actions are Putin and the FSB. And, of course, the FSB is the Russian security agency, kind of like the FBI in America. So there was a response to Christopher Steele from the great Eli Lake, who does commentary for the New York Sun, among other places. Eli Lake responded to Christopher Steele by saying, I will give you a million dollars if you can verify these allegations. <laughs> well, you know, because the FBI offered Christopher Steele a million dollars to verify the allegations and the dossier with his name on it. I just thought that was perfect. Christopher Steele should get and some kind of a Nobel Prize for lack of self-awareness. That he is even coming out from under whatever rock he's been hiding under and saying anything publicly is just a catastrophe, a fiasco, in my humble opinion. And as always, you're entitled to it. That having been said, You've been listening to episode 264 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a terribly messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you'd like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansour's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempierre X. And that's the way it is.
Thursday, October 20th, 2022.